How's an ordinary American supposed to figure out what to think about a COVID surge that is broader, but also way milder than any previous version, yet seems to be triggering some pretty dramatic reactions? And why did the Supreme Court take up President Biden's vaccine mandate case last week without yet delivering a decision? What does it all mean for schools getting back in session? And speaking of President Biden, Will the political demise of his multiple trillion dollar Build Back Better plan save us all from monster inflation? We'll discuss all this and more on today's episode of Independent Outlook. Greetings, everybody. I'm Graham Walker coming to you from the Independent Institute here in Oakland, California. Uh, we're just across the bay from San Francisco. We try and bring you some analysis of the events of the day from a perspective that is independent of, shall we say, dominant political trends and fashions. And uh, to uh, help us in this conversation today, I'm joined by my two colleagues, uh, as is customary. So grateful to have David Thoreau with us. David is the founder and president of the Independent Institute. Hello, David. Hi, Graham. Great to be here. Great to see you. Great to have all of our friends with us. Uh, also, for the conversation, we also have our other longtime collaborator, Williamson Evers. Bill Evers, welcome. Thank you. Bill is the director of our Center on Educational Excellence um, and a very noteworthy scholar of all things education and public policy more generally. So um, gentlemen, we have uh, taken a little break during the holiday season, but here we are back together and with our friends from around the country. So glad to have you all with us. Um, there's a lot happy to New talk Year. about. Yeah, and happy new year to everybody, exactly, for sure. But there's a lot to talk about. Um, I wanna talk about COVID first. Uh, if you don't mind, uh, I noticed the other day that um, the New York Times, okay, the New York Times is telling us that the data is telling a consistent story. I'm reading from a Times report. Omicron is significantly milder. And the New York Times says there's less hospitalization, milder hospitalization, fewer deaths. Um, it was a pretty important distinction between the Omicron surge, which is mild uh, but broad, and the earlier surges. And yet, and yet, uh, just to get on the table, this thought here, which is that California, for example, I'm afraid maybe a little more than some states, but not atypical, California is kind of going out on a limb. Uh, there's a shortage of workers, partly because of Omicron, um, keeping people home, but also partly because there have been these requirements that unvaccinated healthcare workers should not report to work. But now there's a new mandate coming down from the California Department of Public Health saying that uh, even COVID positive healthcare workers, if they're vaccinated but asymptomatic, can be forced to come to work to deal with the healthcare shortage. So my head is spinning. <laughs> I'm gonna turn to David first here, but my head is spinning. So first, they tell them that they can't work because they're not vaccinated, but if they are vaccinated and they get sick anyway, then they have to come to work if they're asymptomatic. But we know if they're asymptomatic, even if they're vaccinated, they can be spewing the virus. So what's going on here, David? Well, it's even more complicated and confusing because uh, we know that the vaccinations have virtually no effect on the Omicron variant. Uh, so it doesn't really matter if you've been vaccinated or not, you're susceptible to it just the same. Uh, we know quite a bit more now. We also know that the more times you are vaccinated, uh, the more likely you are to get COVID now because your immune system has been compromised. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the idea you're going to be, you're going to have a booster every 
six months, four months, one month, week, whatever, is a fool's errand. Uh, so the bigger picture that should give us hope is that the Omicron variant, which is basically similar to a head cold, uh, it can also create natural immunity. And since this is very, uh, this is a variant that is very contagious, the possibility of the population reaching herd immunity is quite high, as long as the government doesn't keep locking people up and uh, essentially create an incentive, so to speak, for another variant. But the likelihood of, of the Omicron variant being sort of a Christmas present is high. Mm -hmm. I think most scientists agree with that. And uh, it's, uh, it's good news. So in California and New York and elsewhere where they're, they're uh, locking down people again or, or talking about it seriously or threatening to penalize people who are not vaccinated as far as being able to work or to go to restaurants or, or whatever is really completely misguided. And it's not based on the science. So I have to uh, qualify David's generally sound remarks and that I'm not sure I'm in agreement with him that having these shots and boosters is reducing your immunity. I think that's a quite disputed thing, but there's no reason to dwell on it. I mean, it's clearly not blocking people from getting the Omicron variant. Yeah, certainly not. I mean, what's a little confusing, of course, is that um, for any individual, you can imagine under certain circumstances, if you have pre-existing conditions or your certain age or whatever, there might be a real advantage to you for to getting uh, the vaccine. But at the same speaking, time, speaking matter, for the speaking for the over 70 crowd. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, by the way, we should mention one thing about the vaccines. The vaccines are not the same idea. In fact, the definition of vaccine is that you're inoculated with a version of the virus. And so these are different because they're tackling different. the spikes. So technically, right. it's not a vaccine. Um, and the the uh, whatever we want to call them, let's call them vaccines for the time being, uh, are simply untested. The vaccine that is that is uh, legal in the United States is a vaccine that you can't get in the United States. And the uh, David, that's somewhat confusing. And it is confusing. Certainly, the FDA did think, not approve the vaccine that's available in the U.S. They approved another vaccine, which is not even available. It was basically a con job, and that's what I think that's widely known now. It's uh, not widely known to me. Well, it it. I thought I, I, I'm willing to people I'm, who are epidemiologists who practice. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to accept that the testing of the vaccine was imperfect. For example, they didn't really test a lot of older people. They didn't really test a lot of people that were uh, having lots of comorbidities. These are the most vulnerable people. There's, but now we have lots of experience with it. We so have lots of experience, I, but part of it, as I was going to also, is that if the vaccine is so effective, uh, why is there no liability for side effects or damaging results? In fact, most of the institutions were pressured not even to keep track of, of side effects. 
I certainly agree that yeah. uh, we want to have liability for, for things, right. certain things. But I also think I, I can't really buy the idea that the vaccine is killing more people than COVID-19. And that was the Kathy Hochul uh, announcement, and right? That's what that was her announcement. I don't trust her on too. much of anything. <laughs> Cuomo knew it, too, and wouldn't release it. Let's now, become talk, even more but, evident. But, the, but the, data, the data on this is derived from self-reporting, not from medically scrutinized, scientifically scrutinized data. So I'm just not going to It's the only data you. that exists, Bill. <laughs> okay, but it's no good. Well, then what data are you using to make your claim? I'm just saying no good data is no good data. It's, it is data that is more accurate than what we had before, because before... The uh, number of people who are being, I mean, one of the things that, that the governor of New York admitted. It, it has to go that, through some kind of scientific re review. Yeah. It can't just be self-reporting right. and then you take it raw and don't analyze it. So I, I think we should drop the topic. Well, let me just make one more point. The other point I was going to make is that the uh, reporting of the Omicron uh was uh, played down uh, as far as it's being mild. Um, and the uh, the number of people, this is probably the most startling thing that the government admitted, is that the number of people who are uh, listed as dying of COVID or hospitalized as COVID was radically exaggerated. They have admitted that. And I think it's right. it's very good that they have because it's, different right. to die exactly. from COVID yes. and die with COVID. In other exactly. words, mm -hmm. right. the typical race example is the guy's in an automobile accident. And, you know, he's basically killed by the automobile accident. So then they test him and he has, you know, COVID or asymptomatic COVID or something like that. And they list <laughs> partly because mm -hmm. of bounties for that in hospital reimbursements and, yes. part, and, and so forth. Right. And, but, for any number of reasons, they're listing it as a COVID death. So and the same thing is true with children too, right? Exactly. So children, children hospitalizations or just children who almost are tested, all that's right. right. So children who are tested are not necessarily have, sick with COVID. Right. They may they have, have no symptoms COVID. whatsoever. Exactly. So that I think is a completely it's a it's a good thing that that's coming out, and that yes. even Fauci is acknowledging that. So I I think that's. A, more, a much more clear-eyed portrait of the whole situation. And I think David's absolutely correct to say that there was exaggeration that accompanied the uh, announcements about Omicron and that there's panic. And we can most easily see this in the whole school situation. But obviously, the California policies are another symptom of this. And, uh, you know, they need to calm down and they need to concentrate again on the elderly, the people with comorbidities. Right. And the rest and the rest of the people should be going about their normal business. And if you have a disease, you should stay home and your family should stay home. The other thing that's that's come out just in the last uh, few days was the uh, release of documents that Project Veritas uncovered, right. uh, of military documents, right. which essentially showed the correspondence uh, by Fauci and others, uh, which is 
a complete disgrace and it shows the corruption within these agencies. Uh, that's part of the dispute between uh, Dr. Fauci and Senator Rand Paul. Well, not just exactly. Senator Rand Paul, it's also um, with uh, Senator, he, he was just on yesterday. Tom Cotton was also. That's right. Well, Cotton, but there's another one. Anyway, the point is that this is becoming more accepted uh, in mainstream circles. And Fauci continues to deny it, even though the documents are clear. It's emails and to him, it's emails from him. Uh, and the basic story for those who don't know it was that uh, the EcoHealth Alliance, uh, DARSAC, uh, wanted to do research uh, to be funded by uh, DARPA from the Department of Defense. And the department turned it down because they believed they would not have the right security and safety precautions right. because it was just too dangerous. Right. But, but <laughs> Fauci didn't care. And so the, the point that Senator Rand Paul and others have been making is that uh, Fauci had this long-term relationship with the Wuhan lab. So they put it there secretly and have tried to cover it up and if it was too dangerous for the bioweapons program of the Department of Defense, why is NIH involved in it? Good well, question. the reason is because because, NIH I, because is actually, they have some money. <laughs> well, it's not just that; it's because NIH and the and the history of uh, the CDC itself is uh, one of developing bioweapon grade. Uh, materials in different ways. And there's a whole history of that too, which is another story. So there's there's also emerging, this is by no means shown to be a valid report, but there's news of a possible military analysis of what was actually going on, that they may have been trying to inoculate bats in order to make the bats less dangerous to humans. Huh. But that they, the step it was a slip between cup and lip mm -hmm. and the virus emerged into human society. So this isn't confirmed yet. Uh, looked, I and my research associate looked all over the Internet today to try to find out if this has been verified. But it's still just reported. We don't know whether the document that's come out is, is really a real one or not. But if it is, that helps explain anyway what the Wuhan people were probably doing. Also, it uh, one of the side aspects of this is, uh, we've discussed this before, the article, uh, the letter essentially published in the Lancet Journal that was uh, basically organized, organized yeah. by Darsak, assigned by 17 scientists. Many of those scientists have since changed their mind. That is true. And they no longer either believe the uh, the wet market source or any other animal source, um, but that it really most likely came from a lab, probably the Wuhan lab, or at least uh, it needs to be looked into and not just dismissed was what Darsak tried to do. I strongly recommend Matt Ridley's book, Viral, on this. It's uh extremely fair-minded discussion of both the uh, lab leak and natural uh, transmission theories of origins. And it's very readable. I mean, 
one co-author is a, a top scientist and the other is this great science writer. So I think the thing also that's going on in terms of the conflict between Senator uh, Rand Paul and Dr. Anthony Fauci is Fauci and Co Collins, his boss, uh, tr tried to organize uh, uh, attacks on the Great Barrington focused uh, prevention approach. That focused is a, protection. Yeah. And just wanted to call it, label it uh, as friends and so forth. Right. And Rand Paul has been saying, look, this is these are prominent scientists from Stanford and Oxford and Harvard. You shouldn't have been uh, trying to shut them down. And uh, obviously, Rand Paul also thinks they were right. They were correct. And I, yeah. and I think the three of us also think they were oh, for sure. likely correct. So anyway, I think we should move on to some other horrifying. Well, there the is, but there are other angles. There are some other angles okay. on the same topic. Well, yeah, so we do need to get to the Supreme Court thing a little bit. Yeah, too, yeah. So. David, you're about to toss one more thing there. Well, I was going to say the segue, uh, following on what Bill just said, is uh, COVID and the policies of non-medical uh, criteria for treatment of patients. Ah. Oh, yes. In New York City and New York and, and, yes. uh, and other oh. places. This is, is a very, very. Essentially uh, taking critical race theory and applying it to medicine completely contrary to the Hippocratic Oath and to do no harm and to do whatever you can for that individual patient. Instead, you're rationing care based mm -hmm. on race and whatever other criteria. Now, of course, this this raises a, uh, a particularly damning point about government being involved in healthcare. period. Yeah, I'm wondering why is the government distributing the stuff in the first place? Right. So if, well, they, if you they... have competitive markets in healthcare, uh, you have innovation, you have practitioners and so forth based on uh, care on a voluntary basis. Uh, you have innovation, you have markets, you have all the rest of it. Um, and the care, the price of things drops because of the competition, because of the innovations. But if you eliminate price criteria as the way to make decisions and also the Hippocratic Oath, you're left with other ways of rationing health care. Right. Mm -hmm. And those other ways are really, in my opinion, immoral and can't be based on the science. I mean, for example, one argument that's been made uh, that in many of these instances that uh, the allocation of uh, different kinds of remedies uh, should be done based on race, uh, Hispanic, Blacks, what have you, is the argument that they're essentially uh, from a disparity precision, getting the short end of the stick, and we need to, to equalize things. Um, but if you have to look at the data, uh, I think it was what, it's like 35% of Blacks have been inoculated compared to white. So, so, so it's interesting that progressives are uh, being very deprecatory, very harsh, very mean toward the unvaccinated. Yes. But it turns out that a substantial portion of the unvaccinated are Latinos and Blacks. Right. So in, in their administering of treatments and tests and things like this, they want to be biased deliberately explicitly biased 
in favor of the people that, on the other hand, they're attacking. So they're caught in a crazy position here. Right. So the highest, the as far as ethnic groups are concerned, the highest percentage group to be vaccinated are Asians. Uh, and the lowest percentage is blacks. And and that's black, their choice. Black, that's, their choice. that's their choice. But, but, then, but, the, have, but then they shouldn't be rewarded for that, in my opinion. Right, exactly. you know, they and, should just be treated neutrally. So if yeah. the point is that the unvaccinated are the threat, yeah. this, this goes against that. But also, in it, you know, take the side of blacks, whose history includes... Uh, Tuskegee syphilis experiments. Exactly. Yeah. And other, other examples of eugenics-based approaches <clears throat> that were done either secretly or in a compulsory way, uh, which were incredibly harmful. So it's not, it's not surprising that there's some right. vaccine hesitancy there. Yes, that's right. Okay, I think we should go to the Supreme Court. Uh, Let's go, yeah. Oh. I mean, so they the, the court on Friday, just a few days ago, uh, had a four-hour uh, session where the, the case was brought to them on these these two mandates coming down from the federal government, the Biden administration. One was imposing a vaccine man, mandate for workers in health facilities, uh, at least insofar as health facilities receive federal funds, which is the vast majority of them. Um, and the other is a more general uh, mandate from OSHA requiring a vaccine or test uh, protocol for all private employers of 100 or more workers. Right. And so this 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 was a pretty important um, discussion. Apparently, the Biden administration believes that these mandates, insisting that healthcare workers get these vaccines, and then insisting that employees of larger companies get vaccines, that this would solve the problem better or be a big help toward improving the, the epidemic or something, I guess. But uh, the court has actually not yet issued its decision on the matter. So these two mandates are actually moving ahead, at least where they can, in 25 states, uh, the uh, private employer uh, mandate is you know, being implemented even as we speak, or at least all the employers are wondering what to do right. because the court hasn't issued a final ruling. Uh, my guess is that there's a lot of behind the door arguing going on at the Supreme Court right now, and they're trying to decide how they're going to issue a decision. But based on what happened on Friday in the courtroom, it was pretty clear uh, that the uh, those supporting these federal mandates had a pretty du constitutionally dubious case. I mean, well, for it's example, constitutionally dubious, it's scientifically dubious. And it's well, also yes. statutorily dubious. I mean, the OSHA, dubious, right. the OSHA law, which we're not really here to defend, but anyway, the law that was passed has to do with things like equipment, okay? Right. And, mm -hmm. you know, space around you to be safe and things like that. Uh, it, it, it's not a public health measure, public health, again, we're not necessarily saying that state and local governments handle this wisely, but in terms of government measures, that is uh, under our constitution, a state and local matter, not a federal matter. And they're trying to shoehorn it into something right. that has to do with, you know, dangerous weaving looms and things like that, assembly lines. And uh, so the court is rightfully skeptical. Now they're not as skeptical about 
federally funded healthcare workers. And I think for the three of us, a larger sort of thing is how moot is this, given that right. the vaccines are not stopping the spread? They're uh, not. And, and the so, level of vaccination has reached a pretty high percentage anyways without yes, the mandates right. coming from the federal yes. government. Yeah, it's about 70 yes. percent of Americans have had uh, at least one vaccine. And right. when it comes to the highly vulnerable population, it's in the 90s. Yes. Right. Right. And but so the, part what was of, amazing. Part of, go ahead, Greg. Well, what was amazing to me was that the reaction of some of the justices was fascinating. Um, for and, example, their, and their ignorance. <laughs> we'll come to that in a minute. But I'm looking at this report from NPR uh, that I was following here. Um, and Justice Elena Kagan, it was reported, noted that nearly a million people have died. It's a part by far the greatest public health danger the country has faced. And this is the policy that is most geared to stopping this. Okay, now. And she also claimed there were tons of children on ventilators. <laughs> that was Sotomayor. I'm on Kagan right now. We'll come to uh, Sotomayor in a second. Uh, sorry. But re regarding Kagan, so her argument, at least the part that's being reported here is the lead argument that she was making or implication of her statements and so forth, is that this policy is going to stop all this. So there must be a way to justify the federal government imposing the mandate mm -hmm. because this is the desired result. Yes. Right. Very result-oriented. Right. And not at all attentive to the role of a judge, which yes. should be, first of all, jurisdictional. Well, it's positive law in in, in a perfect perfect sense yeah yeah absolutely right. but she really ought to be asking as the others were doing well, um, part of the, the does view, the federal government have the authority to issue this kind of mandate or not part of the view is the view that uh fauci who represents essentially the mainstream public health viewpoint is that if you have uh an infection or a pandemic or an epidemic the solution is to have universal vaccination Right. And the point I've been making uh, that Robert Malone and others have been making is that if you push for universal vaccination, you actually create incentives for the virus to mutate into more potent forms. Right. That's what's scary about so it. So the recommendation okay, there you have, there Scott, you have a good point. Scott Atlas and, and others have been making people behind the Great Barrington Declaration and so on, is that, as Bill said, you focus on those who most who are most at risk. Now, it may be vaccinations, it may be therapeutics, it may be, uh, there are other things that people are taking, which have a track record. But the point is that this one size fits all view is not based on the science, and it is dangerous. And so the, I, the I ignorance of the, of, the, of the Supreme, the, the liberal members, essentially justices, that, uh, which was voiced by Kagan, Sotomayor, and Breyer, shows they don't know what they're talking about as far as the science of it. And they're just acting as true progressives believing in the conventional narrative. From a constitutional point of view, um, there's this other dimension of it, though, too. I agree with you about the facts and the, the danger of excessive mass vaccination and so forth. But even if it were true that quoting Elena Kagan, this is the policy that is most geared to stopping this, even if that were true, which yeah. it isn't true. But even if it were true, mm -hmm. um, it doesn't follow that the federal government has the power that claimed right. to issue the and the mindset of Justice Kagan and the other two on that wing of the court to me is so revealing in this case, because for their point of view, once you decide on the desired and beneficent outcome, even if mistakenly, but if that's what you think, then you just look for some rationalization 
to justify the federal government issuing these mandates. It makes constitutional law into an exercise in rationalization of power. And that to me is quite scary from a constitutional point of view. And the default is always to centralize power. Always, yeah, it's always to centralize power. Right. Uh, so we've got um, so some we, other we things should, to say about we these justice. Oh, oh, okay. Well, about so Justice Sotomayor, she got, I mean, it's worth mentioning, you know, she, she got uh, uh, kind of roasted afterwards for having made the comment that there were 100,000 children in serious condition, many of them on ventilators. Well, right. it turns out uh, even Rochelle Walensky, the director of the CDC, had to make a public statement and say, well, it's actually it's about 3,500 children right. in hospital with COVID, not 100,000. Yeah, but again, um, it's with COVID. <laughs> Not because of COVID. Well, right. I mean, so in other words, it's even less. Right. right. So the 100,000 number, which Justice Sotomayor came up with out of the air, I guess. It's not It's not coronavirus that's brought them into exactly. the hospital. That's well, right. a, a few of them probably. Some, yeah. yeah. Yeah, small oh, sure. number. But it, it's virtually... It's and, they're not exactly, not on ventila- it's- and they're not on ventilators. We now know that right. you don't do ventilators until very much in extremis. Right. right. And then, I think... And then Breyer, getting back to my point, was basically voicing the Fauci view that we want to have 100% vaccination, and that will only 100% vaccination will create 100% or some large uh, percentage of herd immunity, and it's simply not true. Right. It's not so based it's, on the science. This whole thing is problematic both factually and is problematic constitutionally. And I do suspect that the six um, members of the court who expressed skepticism about these federal mandates very likely will agree to issue some kind of a ruling. At least the question is whether they can do it timely. I know exactly. Yeah, you really wonder whether they'll they'll be able to do. And and, and employers everywhere they're they're pulling their hair out. They don't know what. Well, some of them are, you know, preemptively requiring it. Right. it seems so like I that's think the... we should I think we should hope good sense prevails. And I think we should turn to the schools because good. that's a yeah. place where good sense is not. <laughs> yeah. Tell us, OK, how is this hitting the schools and are the schools able to open properly? Bill? Well, they haven't really. The teachers and the, and the unions that are the vehicle for teachers worries. And so. So think of the teachers unions as an interest group that uh, is is organized mainly to push for more money and greater, you know, better, more friendly working conditions for teachers. And it's a membership organization and it attempts to uh, cartelize the market and block additional entrants from coming easy, you know, people substituting for teachers that, in a way that somehow competes against their uh, high salary. So, uh, so they they you have uh, a low opinion of teachers unions. I can tell. No, it's, a, no, <laughs> it's not low. It's that's just like it's straightforward uh, yeah. realism about mm-hmm. what they do. That's right. So, by the way, they you know, I mean, the the big man who. You know, such created the American Federation of Teachers from New York, Albert Shanker, said, hey, we'll start worrying about the children when the children start playing dues, you know, when they start paying dues. So they're they're frank about this in candid moments. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so the problem is that many teachers were panicked by this. Many teachers were not really looking at 
the, the best science on this. It is complicated to try and figure it out, but they just decided to leverage their power to close down the schools and, and not even really go over to virtual learning. They're, they're just not working. And so Chicago was the most famous case of this. They're now returning after, you know, an unauthorized strike. And uh, the, the city is not willing to pay them for the days they took off. They may somehow wangle that back somehow. In San Francisco, they took out, they had a, a sick out, over a million children. There's 50 million children in schools. So over a million children were out in January, which we're just into now, uh, because of these sorts of work stoppages and lockdowns and cities saying there's not enough people here. And so we have to close down and so forth. That's a lot of people. And the front page of the New York Times on, the, on Sunday, Sunday New York Times, the lead story was about how the Democrats are terrified of parental reaction to this, yeah. that the, the Democrats are wrapped up in the teachers unions. They supply much of their walking force. They supply a lot of money. They are the dominant interest group at Democratic national conventions. The teachers union endorsement is make or break for candidates for president and for many other offices. In most states, the teachers union is the single most important political group. And so here they are wrapped up with the teachers union inextricably and the parents are furious and they are Democrats are very afraid of a repeat of Virginia yes, right. at state, local and national level. And, you know, it's kind of looking like that might happen. So they don't really know what to do <laughs> there. Uh, you can see the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, who is a left left wing Democrat uh, attacking the teachers unions for this? You that was see, a new phenomenon. Yeah, you can see you can see the president and his minions more or less begging. They're not denouncing. They're not, but they're imploring the teachers. And even Randy Weingarten is trying to thread the needle somehow here, being both for the teachers in their panic and recognizing the political reality, if, if, if this goes on too much, it's going to be a terrible political reaction. So that's a fascinating thing. Uh, the lighter side of this in Arlington, Virginia, uh, teachers union didn't want to go back to work. <laughs> they wrote a completely terrible, uh, issued a terrible statement. It, it, it was bad writing. It was Poor usage. It was spelling, grammar, punctuation mistakes. Oh, that's embarrassing for it's, teachers. You know, <laughs> it's the typical thing. It's like having a school district, and you look at the opening page of some kind of spelling or grammatical error. This, this had scores of errors in it, yep. and, and of course, it went viral. So that's the lighter side, but it's horrifying to think that people doing this are the people teaching our children. Well, another, another aspect of this, which is a positive side, is the growth of homeschooling and yes. other schooling alternatives. Uh, it's been a great year for charter schools, right. for vouchers, yep. and for homeschooling. Homeschooling, I think, has increased. You can correct me if, about this. I think it was before something like 2 to 3% of uh, children were homeschooled. It's now 
I think it's slightly over 11%, is that right? And of course, some states, in fact, some of the blue states, including New York and others, uh, are, far, are higher. Uh, and so it's been a, it's growing. It's growing pretty quickly. And I'll plug this book behind me, uh, Really Good Schools by James Tooley. Uh, Excellent book. Which is on, on, on many, many schools. Right. The, the private mini enormous schools. trend worldwide for low cost, high quality private schools for the poor and everybody else. And pretty I think, good new brand new book by Lance Azumi. On yes, home that's right. A new book by Lance. Um, Not one of ours, but a good book. Yeah, I think it's important. And so I think that this this case is becoming more more accepted, uh, partly because parents are desperate. But it's not just that you can't have face-to-face -face education, as, as uh, Bill is pointing out. It's when people see what the schools are teaching and the poor quality of who is a teacher. And this incident in Virginia, um, that's why it went viral, because people were shocked to see it. And it's spreading because um, these mothers uh, and fathers, but especially, especially the moms, uh, are not going to put up with this this baloney, and they've seen what even with the distance learning what the kids are being taught, and they're not going to put up with it. I think another thing is, <laughs> so in connection with the Chicago uh, teachers walking off, some political scientists have pointed out that you know, when you look at opinion polls, parents are very often sympathetic to the teachers unions. And this is undermining that. So it has a serious long-term effect that a kind of a shell that's been there is cracked. Yeah, the image of public schooling, of course, was that it was there uh, as, a, as a safeguard, especially for the poor to get the kind of education they need. And to, that it's always there. It's, it's always like the there. post office, right? right. And, and it's, it's rain or hail nor sheet, right. sleet and or whatever. Okay, well, okay, it's raining, but they're not open. <laughs> right. It's free, free. And uh, <clears throat> and so I think that the facade, it's like the curtain is being pulled back by Toto, uh, revealing <laughs> what really the public schools are doing. They're, they're more interested in not working, in teaching CRT and transgenderism and uh, being paid not to work and the kids be damned in the process. Uh, it's the same thing that people are seeing about the public health establishment and other institutions so, that progressives are too tone deaf to uh, get over. It shows us we need little dogs like Toto to pull the curtain back. Right. So uh, to segue just a little bit, but in the same realm of education, there have been calls from U.S. senators, U.S. Uh, House of Representative members for uh, Miguel Cordova, the U.S. Secretary of Education, to resign yes. because he or his office may have been the ones that asked the National School Boards Association to write the letter to President Biden that denounced parents as domestic terrorists. And so he, his office is denying, he's denying it. Oh, really? Uh, but but the, there's the evidence internal, looked pretty strong. Yes. Well, the evidence is emails amongst the top officials of the National School Boards Association. Mm -hmm. So somebody is lying or misrepresenting or not understanding what happened. But it certainly looks 
problematic, especially if the evidence shows that they did ask yeah. for it. Uh, and so I, I, you know, I, I mean, this guy is in big trouble if he did instigate that. And yeah, course, because the point the, is that <laughs> it was presented to us initially that the, the school, school boards had, are yeah. so concerned that they are right. appealing that to they federal spontaneously, authorities. Spontaneously. Yeah. But it done. turns out the federal authorities may have been inducing them to appeal to the to the federal authorities. Yeah, wow. that's not good. And, and it reminds me of a further segue that the Department of Justice has just set up a domestic terrorism unit. I noticed that. Mainly probably mm -hmm. to target conservatives, yes. uh, ideological conservatives. Yeah, but we need to keep our eyes on that because whenever the, the power yeah. of the central state gets deployed in that way on ideological grounds, it doesn't. Yeah. it's not good. It, it goes one way or the other. It's always bad. It's a lot of people, uh, including us, were critical of the adoption of the U.S. Patriot Act, not to say that there weren't right. things that were done inappropriately before that that were legal, but the Patriot Act institutionalized and gave a veneer of, of a legality. Right. And we told them that, look out, this is going to be, this could and likely will be used domestically uh, right. for all sorts of purposes in the guise of fighting terrorism, having nothing to do with it. Right. We have a bunch of friends with us, of course, on this uh, episode of Independent Outlook. Uh, some of them are tossing me little comments here and there. Um, one, which I just want to bring in right now uh, and see if you guys have a thought about it. Um, a friend named Terry uh, sends a note in saying, uh, are the teachers unions really needed for Democratic campaign funding? Well, you well I, it depends. I, 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 <laughs> I don't know what needed exactly means. They they have been a major contributor. They are a major gatekeeper of, of candidates. And they are hugely influential interest group within the Democratic Party. Yeah. I, I you know, is there some other way that funding could replace them? Well, you know, I, I mean, thing, things always are changing in American politics. That's but for sure. I think, I think uh, the Democrats would rather, you know, have what they have and build on it rather than right. have to fill in a hole. Well, I think Lori Lightfoot's reaction was instructive. I mean, to the left right. as she is, she decided that she was going to lose ground if she catered to what the unions wanted. So she stood against and, them for a spell. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And I, there's also... Uh, the Sister Solia movement or uh, moment type of thing, where if the unions get too far uh, egregiously promoting their own perceived interests, uh, sometimes uh, a politician will check them on that just to show that he or she has some independence. Well, there are plenty of uh, billionaire high tech right. people. Who are who left supply liberal money. or left right. liberal who yeah, are putting sure. up big bucks. And it, it's, some not, of them it's are not a skeptical. coincidence that what they often support, it actually enables their own particular field um, to be cartelized and get subsidies and so on. But they do they do believe in this uh, because that's what they're schooled to believe. Um, but I but think many of them, many of them are skeptical of teachers unions. That's true. That's right. In uh, fact, many of them are for for charter schools, but charters I, and vouchers. Right. Okay. So I think okay. it, it, it would be it, it'll be tougher, but it is something that's come into existence. The Democrats have benefited from the last 20 years, certainly. 
but I think Bill's exactly right that the 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 force of the unions, as far as one being viewed as apple pieish, uh, yeah. and Amer- right. all American. I think that's over. I think it's over, and I think <laughs> oh, we'll see. They'll try and get it back. They'll try and get it back. the CRT and other aspects of this. Right. Right. Are destroying it. It's just too potent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the usual reaction when you talk about this kind of thing is someone will say in response to this systemic analysis, they'll say, well, we have good teachers at our schools that we really like them. Right. And and such teachers. We have an actual name for this in sort of social psychology called the retail fallacy or also Ah, called mm -hmm. the paradox of proximity. So you always think, oh, the teachers in the school where I put my kid. They're conscientious. They're good. Uh, it's problems are elsewhere in the school system. This may be cracking that to some extent. Uh, I would say, though, that with regard to critical race theory, it's not really a creature of the teachers unions. So they've gotten on board, mm-hmm. so to speak, although, although they are among those sometimes deny that critical race theory is being taught in the schools, which is it certainly is. It certainly is. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so they've, you know, they're they're linked to it now, and it's going to be tough to for them to brush it off. I will I will congratulate National Review for uh, its recent issue on uh, the 1619 project. So the 1619 project is a project of the New York Times to try to change the history curriculum in in the schools. And to say that everything in America is governed by the fact of slavery in our past and that, you know, every aspect of history, every institution, every DU government, everything is all connected to and governed by and controlled by the existence of slavery. So anyway, the National Review ran several great articles. Uh, one by Phil Magnus, in which he debunks the new history of capitalism. And I, I think he does a great job of showing the facts are wrong about these people. Uh, another is by Wilfred Riley, political scientist. He shows that uh, slavery is not all that important in American history. There are lots of other things going on that the abolitionists had a, who were the anti-slavery people of the 19th century, they saw the potential in American political culture, some of them in the constitution, some in other aspects of American political culture, they were not trying to tear down uh, American society and its political values. Uh, And another, another great article is by Charles Cook. Uh, Charles is arguing that the claim of the 1619 project at the Second Amendment, having to do with the right to bear arms, was put in there to put down slave revolts. And he says, no, of course, slave revolts were put down before that. Uh, they didn't need that. Slave, uh, Second Amendment had to do with protecting yourself against the tyranny of government. And once blacks were freed from slavery, it was extremely important for them in combating Ku Klux Klan type terrorism. Oh, that's for sure. This this book uh, by uh, Stephen Halbrook is a systematic follow up to the same points that uh, Charles Cook is making in the National Review. And that's an independent so, institute book. Yes, yes, it is. Uh, and it's an excellent book. And it, it has an earlier title 
uh, was originally the subtitle of this, mm -hmm. Freedmen, the 14th Amendment, and the Right to Bear Arms. Mm -hmm. But anyway, either way you find it, it's, if you're interested in this, it's a great, great thing. Before we turn the page Wait, on, Before you turn, you turn the page to turn the page, uh, Steve Hallberg also in his most recent book, The Right to Bear Arms, goes through this and builds upon that earlier book and uh, shows that the 14th Amendment was primarily pushed and, and adopted so that Blacks could own guns to defend themselves. Yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to, add another, wanted to add another thing in the race field, and that is that uh, there's a, a major figure in American legal history named Homer Plessy. Mm -hmm. So there was a, a case yeah. called Plessy v. Ferguson, and the decision by the U.S. Supreme Court established separate but equal. Now, Plessy was trying to, to not have the state enforce the streetcar, separate streetcar law. And he was suing to stop government from doing that. The streetcars, not companies that ran streetcars, did not want, and railroads did not want to have to supply uh, separate cars and enforce separate segregation of the races and first of all they had to put extra cars on the trains <laughs> cost them money and uh, they just didn't want to be in this business They're, they just wanted people to ride their cars and, and and you know get from place to place so jennifer roebuck morse has done terrific scholarship on this uh and the national geographic story on the whole issue uh, on the plastic being posthumously Pardoned uh, mentions the fact that the streetcar companies and the railroads did not support this, that they mm. helped fund fund his legal effort. And uh, most of the stories, though, I have to say, never mentioned this. Yep. So Absolutely. anyway, it's this important sidebar that business is not pro-racial segregation. Cuts into their profits. They don't want racial segregation. <laughs> Business is trying to serve its customers. That's yeah. why that's why Jim Crow laws had to be passed because on their own businesses wanted more customers. Exactly. And exactly. the only way to stop it was to create cartels enforced by the government. Uh, we're going to turn the page to talk about uh, money and inflation, but um, you know we have friends with us on the program today uh, on the teachers union business. Here's a couple of fun comments. I appreciate it very much. Um, uh, Jeff uh, notes that something like 25% of the delegates to the 2016 Democratic Convention were members of teacher unions. That's a, a large percentage of, of the people at the Democratic uh, National Convention. And then Patsy writes in saying, we assume teachers union represents the teachers. I am a teacher and I'm pretty sure the teachers union represents the union. <laughs> good, good point, Patsy. Much appreciated. Well, there's a, there's a thing in political sociology called the iron law of oligarchy. And that says that any organization, the politically adept people will take charge and stay in charge. Mm -hmm. It's true of unions, as was discussed by Seymour Martin Lipset in his book, Union Democracy. So I think that goes on, but they're also adapt to the fears and worries of their constituents because they are afraid that maybe if they don't, someone else will, a new generation or something will throw out the leaders. And, you know, there's always a person that's going to say, oh, you're kowtowing to the man, you're in mm -hmm. league with the bosses. And so the leaders will 
uh, cater to the fears of their members. So, okay, um, changing the subject slightly, um, before Christmas, uh, Congress passed President Biden's uh, pandemic relief bill, uh, which was a big burst of spending. And then he wanted Congress to pass, of course, his Build Back Better plan. Um, some people argue who really is a national treasure. I would say that uh, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia bids fair to be called national treasure because he announced right before Christmas that he wasn't going to support the Build Back Better thing. No way, no how. And that pretty much was the end of it. And his argument was that there were all sorts of gimmicks that the Biden administration and the Democratic leadership put in the bill to conceal its true costs. Yes. Uh, there were these programs that were allegedly going to be temporary, uh, but then those very programs were being advertised by the leadership as uh, transformative changes to society, which meant that the goal was not that they'd be temporary, but that they'd be permanent. And he argued that there would be a staggering debt of more than $29 trillion was going to be built up by this, and, and he wasn't going to go for it. And that was the end of that. Um, will that help us kill the beast of inflation, which would otherwise have been fed even further? I don't think so, because the inflation we're seeing now, <laughs> you know, they didn't pass it, right? So, okay. yes, there's been lots of government spending, lots and lots, and it's been increasing. And the, the COVID-related relief, I mean, spending in the name of that, it's been monumental. And they're monetized, they monetize the debt. So that's what gives us the, the money supply that is behind all this when, when supply chain problems are not leading to it. It's a combination of the two. So we may get some relief from supply chain eventually straightening itself out. But this money is backed up and it takes a long time for inflation. If, if they, if they, behave themselves, it would take a long it would take a while for it to go out of the system somehow. So I don't I think, you know, it's we're not off the hook. And certainly Democrats are not going to stop trying to get the spending in 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 pieces. The Wall Street Journal poses the question, where should the blame lie for US inflation? Uh, and I would like to recommend to our friends to take a look at this really remarkable article by our senior fellow, Benjamin Powell, that was published um, today in Newsweek, and it'll be available on our own website, I think, tomorrow. Is that right, David? Yes. Uh, ben Powell points out that uh, price controls and government spending will not fix inflation. Uh, he, right. he points out that we've been down this road before. In the 1970s, Richard Nixon tried famously the wage and price controls, uh, which then collapsed uh, on themselves horribly, dogging his steps, those of his successor Ford and successor Carter. Uh, it was really a huge, uh, huge mistake. And that's because according to the analysis from Ben Powell, uh, the underlying reality of how many goods and services are available and how much money is available to spend on them is what really determines right. the actual economic situation. You can't create a falsehood by somehow pretending that, uh, you know, uh, you can control it's a, the it's the, same it's the same thing. The balloon is blown up. And to try and squeeze it in various ways, you're just going to, you know, kind of move the balloon around. But you're not going to, uh, you know, you haven't ended inflation by trying to squeeze it into some 
artificial thing by wage and price control. Right, exactly. So Judy Shelton is talking about the need to reduce the Fed's balance sheet right. and other measures. Uh, and, and ultimately gold. That's right. So, uh, and the idea of gold is to bring something that has a market value as opposed to just printing paper uh, to stabilize prices and stabilize wealth and the debt ratio. Um, we proposed some years ago the idea of uh, liquidating federal assets to do the same thing in many respects. Uh, the federal government is one of the largest, wealthiest entities in the entire world. And yet the assets are never valued um, as part of uh, what should be looked at as far as debt and who owes what. Um, and uh, we did a study maybe 10 years ago, uh, which is still very appropriate that if, uh, if even if just oil, coal and gas reserves on public land mm -hmm. were uh, essentially put on the market uh, the the value minus extraction costs would pay off the entire national debt. Wow, one and a half times. Wow, and this doesn't include the continental shelf and whatever. Right. So uh, the federal government owns buildings and vehicles and patents and all sorts of stuff, and so that would be another way to deal with this. But Judy's recommendation is is a crucial point. Mm -hmm. um, but the uh, the spending pressure uh, of interest groups and certainly the Washington establishment is very high, but as both you, Bill and Graham are mentioning is that there's no way to contain it uh, if you just depend upon inflating the balloon. Right, it, it's almost inevitable that it'll be inflated. And if right. you try and control the inflation by price, governmentally imposed price controls, that'll, that'll backfire. Here's this, Listen to this great quote from this piece by ben, ben Powell. He says, using the power of government to limit price increases will do as much long-term good as trying to stop global warming by preventing thermometers from registering higher readings. Okay. <laughs> I think that's a brilliant analogy and, and pretty darn clever. But so poor President Biden, he's probably feeling kind of desperate at this point. He gave a speech yesterday in Georgia. I think his, his next place to turn his attention is not going to be build back better, but it's going to be voting. Uh, and he came out swinging yesterday and we can't talk too much longer on this, but he came out swinging yesterday saying that anyone who opposes the federalization of election law in America is essentially implementing Jim Crow 2.0 and is a racist. Uh, did you guys <clears throat> see his comments yesterday? They were pretty potent. Well, I mean, he was, he opposed the filibuster for Decades, so oh, he supported he, su he supported the filibuster. He opposed yeah, he supported, the elimination. Yeah, he supported the it, filibuster yeah. for decades. So is that to say that Biden's the bulk of his career he was a racist and a segregationist and well for part a of bull the Connor, time he was. a bull Connor, right. George Wall. Yeah, that's right. So this is this is desperate, and it he's he's saying that the uh, uh, having the fifty states have authority over voting measures which is in the constitution uh, is equivalent to having totalitarian states. Yeah, overrule. he was saying that, crazy. I mean, it's just so off the 
deep end. Off the chart. It's off, off the chart. Off. Yeah. And I think it represents a sense of desperation on yeah. his part because he's looking for, he can't solve the COVID crisis. He can't get his hands around, you know, the inflation and the economy. Um, he can get traction if he, if he brings racial issues into the voting rights question. Maybe he's hoping he, he gets get some traction politically by, by being as inflammatory as possible. But at what cost? At what cost? And of course, many of his own allies on the, the left um, actually boycotted the speech because they said it was too little too late. And he'd been slow to the party. Stacey Abrams. Stacey right. Abrams in particular, and others as well. So uh, we are looking now at, at a vote coming up uh, in the Senate this month. Senator Schumer, uh, the Democratic leader. Uh, he promised it before Martin Luther King Day, so that's did. very imminent. Very imminent. There's allegedly going to be a vote which could kill the filibuster, which would enable the Democratic majority the, by bare one vote to pass everything it wanted mm -hmm. until they lose their majority later this year. And then it would enable the other side to do everything they wanted with just a one vote majority. I think they're into dangerous territory. So I think we should move on to some of the juicy international things that have happened. Okay, that'll be our last segment, and we'll let you take the lead. Judge Sergio Moro in Brazil, who discovered the car wash scandal where uh, oil companies and others were paying politicians to uh, you know, just give them all sorts of special privileges and the whole system the, the middle of the road parties, the conservative parties and the leftist parties were all involved in this. It brought down President Lula. Uh, so that judge uh, is now going to run for president and he has a, a classical liberal economic program. So oh, the current president who was not involved in that car wash scandal, uh, but has proven to be somewhat of a disappointment in economic policy, he appointed a good finance minister, but now he's trying to use uh, bread and circuses to buy votes because he sees he's in trouble. Uh, so he has been a somewhat of a disappointment. He could, he could turn out better, but anyway, this man Moro running, I think is a good step. Another thing that's going on is all this Ukraine back and forth. I think the most profound insight I saw was that Putin wants to be president for life. He, he, he hasn't handled COVID perfectly. He has a very weak economy. He, you know, he has many domestic problems. The only way he can essentially become, be a leader and have this position is to busy um, giddy minds with foreign quarrels, quote Shakespeare, to be a war type president, to be a super patriot president. So I think aside from uh, emotional views, ideological views about Ukraine as uh, another center of Russian civilization and so forth, which he probably also holds and is voiced, uh, I think he's just trying to consolidate his domestic political base here. Meanwhile, uh, all sorts of actors like NATO are scrambling around uh, and, and they're doing some provocative things. They're, they're conducting war games in the Black Sea. Uh, Ted Carpenter, Ted Gale Carpenter has pointed this out. It's not a good thing to do under these circumstances. Everybody should be de-escalating. 
And the Russia is, of course, doing many provocative things. And the Ukrainians are training to be guerrilla warfarers, which I, warriors, I think that's smart on their part. Uh, so we'll see how that turns out. It's not, there are easy ways that that could go wrong and turn into a, a World War I type triggering of would large be, conflagration. But, and would it be so bad if the United States, President Biden, agreed that having Ukraine and NATO is not a great idea? Would that be so bad? Uh, I'm not, you know, I don't see what, how, look, I look, at it, I look at it this way. Ukraine used to be part of the Soviet Union. If George Bush Sr. and his aides had had their way, the Soviet Union would have stayed intact, okay? It's nice that these countries, especially the, the Baltic countries, were able to get out. It's nice that Ukraine was able to get out. Uh, it's not the end of the world. After all, we had NATO, uh, you know, with when we had a balance of power when Ukraine was connected to Russia before. I, I don't favor it for the Ukrainians. No, <laughs> it's horrible clearly, for them. Right? Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't think it's, you know, puts us in imminent peril, the American people. And I don't think it puts Western Europe in, in imminent peril. But also, the also don't th I also don't think Ukraine being, you know, sort of skeptical of the Soviet Union really puts Russia in terrible peril. The Russians who are arguing that are making that up. And so, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of grandstanding going on, but that happens in politics. Well, I think part of the argument that some Ukrainians are making is if the Ukraine becomes part of NATO. And right. so I think that the Ukraine should stay out of NATO. I, I think that would be why. Yeah, that oh, was yeah. my point. And I think mm -hmm. that was yeah. that is the better way to do it. And that would de-escalate. I think a lot. But of I also don't think I don't think there has to be a formal agreement of that. I think no. the Ukrainians should just step back from that. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the U.S. can indicate that no, they're not necessarily so keen on it right away anyways. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that would solve some problems. Well, elsewhere. I don't know if it would solve them because, remember, Putin is trying to solve yeah, his domestic I problems. I know. I understand. And, and, and it looks like the Russians are going to leave Kazakhstan. So mm -hmm. they were they went in there. Good sign. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, well, elsewhere on the international front, on a lighter note, uh, what was this news from uh, about King, Kim Jong Il that you were telling me about, Bill? Uh, well, that's pretty funny. It was a very good article. It was covered in a lot of the Western press, but the Daily Mail had a good article on it. So our our current leader in North Korea are, are, is Kim Jong Un. And his father was Kim Jong-il. And so <laughs> some years ago when he was alive, he uh, came up with uh, some ideas of wheat wraps. So thin beaten wheat that you put various Korean delicacies in. So cabbage and meat and things like that. And you ate it as a wrapped up thing. Now, he then essentially claimed, and the government in Korea is now claiming, that this is an innovation, and no one else has been able to do this. But of course, we have record in Mexico of burritos uh, going back uh, to the early 19th century, and I'm sure they existed long before that, just we don't have records of it. So uh, <laughs> it's a bit 
it's a bit like, you know, the Russians claiming under Stalin that they invented the automobile and the airplane and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of presumptuous. And the commentators, the specialists on North Korea, view it as further irony is that you can't really buy these burritos, even though they claim they're, you know, breaking all quota records and hugely popular. Actually, you can't buy them. Uh, and they don't have even the ingredients because they're uh, having such terrible food problems. But it's actually something the government acknowledges half the time that they're having food problems in North Korea. Uh, but other times they claim everyone's happy. So, Well, so Kim Jong-il created the burrito. Al yes. Gore invented the Internet. Who yes. knows? <laughs> Fun with history. That's right. Uh, we are at the end of our hour. I'm could grateful. I say? Could I just say one thing about Joan Didion and passing? So we lost a great writer, Joan Didion, mm -hmm. who was from Northern California. Yeah. Uh, she didn't always agree with the views of people like us here at the Independent Institute, but she had a cast a cold, clear eye on a lot of U.S. foreign policy adventures. She was extremely candid about the mis. Uh, mishaps of the hippie movement and Haight-Ashbury in the 1960s. She had a, her, her essay, Slouching Toward Bethlehem, is a candid uh, picture of kind of the horrors and frightful stupidities of life in the Haight-Ashbury at that time. She wrote a very clear-eyed analysis of feminism for the New York Times book review in which she said that the essence of the doctrine is substituting women for the proletariat and Marxism, and that the thinking of feminist ideologues is a kind of Stalinist repression. So there are not that many people that have general cultural influence like mm. that, and it's a big loss. Yeah, we miss Joan Didion. May she rest in peace. And uh, let me just from that, thank you both for your insights on public affairs today. Thank you, David Thoreau. And thank you, uh, Bill Evers. It's always a pleasure to have you and thank you. Have all Great. of our friends with us across the various platforms. Thank you for tossing in your comments. I apologize to those people whose interesting input I didn't have a chance to get to, um, but we invite you to come join us again in a couple of weeks for the next episode of Independent Outlook. Bye-bye from California.